Christ Alone Cornerstone. It's the song we're going to close with. It's the title of the sermon, and it is the focal point of these verses. So let's just jump in here. Uh, Verses 4 and 6 really build out this theme of cornerstone, who Jesus is. And and, uh, I want you to emphasize here as you're taking notes the righteousness of this cornerstone. He is the righteous cornerstone. And you'll see why that is so important as we get into these verses. Let's start with verse 4. As you come to him, Peter writes to believers, to us here today even, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. Okay, lots happening in this little verse. Um, Let's consider this. First of all, uh, the Greek is important to see here. Sometimes when we read this, we don't feel the fullness of of what this means. When he says, as you come to him, this is not a one-time event. This is present and ongoing language. Okay, so it's helpful to see this. As you come to him, yes, we, we have come to him in faith to receive him as Savior of Lord, but, but we keep coming. The, the, the words here call us to, as we come and continue to come. We come together here today. That's why we're here. We're coming to him, the living stone. We're coming to gather and to, to receive from him life and joy and peace and, and all that he gives. So, It's not a one-time event. Um, This is an ongoing work. It happens every morning, right? When you know His mercies are new and you open your Bible. Yes, you come to Him. And it certainly happens when the church gathers. This is why we gather. In obedience, we come. We come again. So, it involves a number of things. Belief, right? That's where it's critically important. We come in belief. We come in faith. That he is who he says he is, that he has accomplished all that he has said, and we come and worship because it's true. What he's, what he's done for us, how he's changed us. We've been forgiven. We've been set free. We, we've been made new from the inside out. And so we sing his praise. He is worthy. <laughs> it's about him. It's not about us, right? It's about him. And he is strong when we are weak. So we come in dependence. We come in prayer. Right? This, is, this is the Christian life. Day in and day out. We come and we keep coming over and over. Oh, He is a fountain that will never be exhausted. He delights when we come to Him in these ways. And it says now Peter describes Jesus as the living stone or a living stone. We come to Him like a living stone. And you just stop and think, okay, obviously we've got some, some imagery. So we've got an illustration that he's drawing on. He's going to build out. We're talking about construction and stone masonry here, and, and that's going to build out. But, but why does he describe Jesus as a living stone? Have you ever seen a stone alive? No. They tend to be quite still, and you know they don't do things. Well, it's because we don't have a faith that is in a monument, like our, our faith is not just in the past. Like, there it was. Well, he came. He did. No. He is and he lives. He lives. He, he's alive. We have a Savior who lives. So we don't just have what so many world religions have, which is just a, a, a history, a past. We have a present and we have a future. He came. He lives 
and he's coming again. And so we come to him like a stone alive. That's the idea here. The living stone is the nature of our risen Savior who rules and reigns today and delights when we come to him. Now this stone is described, drawing upon imagery here, from Isaiah chapter 28. Peter, who was uh, very uh, schooled in the Old Testament, he was a good faithful Jew, he knew his Old Testament well, and the Old Testament came alive when Jesus taught, right? Just think of all that he experienced as he was discipled by Jesus. He says this living stone was valued by men as worthless, rejected, but by God as chosen and precious. This living stone, God's assessment, God's valuation of this living stone is chosen and precious. Be interesting, uh, the Hope Diamond, for example. Uh, my family, when we were in D.C. in 2018, we got to go to the Smithsonian and see this with our own eyes. It, it is remarkable, tremendously beautiful. It's an amazing creation of God and, and the skill of man to cut it in, in all its beauty. Um, that's the real deal right there. But there are fake Hope Diamonds that have been manufactured. And so... You know, the process of determining what is authentic, what is real, what is truly valuable, well, that takes work. You've got to look at it. You've got to study it. You've got to find its purity and its, and its imperfections and, and look at the differences. And so just think, 400 years of silence, all the anticipation of the Messiah, and then total silence for 400 years. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist breaks on the scene. And he begins to prophesy, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. And, and people perk up like, well, something's going to happen. We've been waiting 400 years. Now all of a sudden there's a prophet. We've waited so long to hear. Who's it going to be? And then John the Baptist points at Jesus. And he says, there he is. That's the one. He is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one. And that kicks off a test, a evaluation work. So the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, they go to work and they begin to examine Jesus. And they don't like what they see. He doesn't fit their mold. He doesn't fall into the expectations that they have of who he should be. He actually threatens them and their power and their comfort and their teaching itself. He, he, he just pulls the curtains back on their, their hard hearts. And they reject him. But it's not just, they don't, they don't just write him off. They kill him. They kill him. The Messiah, at their hands, is put on a Roman cross and killed. That's their assessment. God's assessment, however, was altogether different. Chosen. Foreknown, foreloved, forechosen. It's, it's that constant language in view here. The Son was was chosen by the Father in eternity past to be the, 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 the one who would bring salvation to sinners. It would be through the Son. And precious. Oh, precious. Hmm. Look at how verse 6 builds this out. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lain. Who's the I there? That's the Father. I am lain in Zion a stone, capital S, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. There's a, a repeat of the verse 
of the language there in Isaiah. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So God the Father says, listen, I'm coming. I'm going to bring hope. I'm going to bring salvation. I'm going to bring a cornerstone, and I am going to lay it in Zion. How did he do so? Through the gospel. That's how he did it. He did it through the Christmas story that we just celebrated. The Son of God was given the mission by the Father to come in the incarnation to take human form, human flesh, and to be born in a manger, and then to live his life with no sin, to to qualify to lay his life down to pay for the sin of others. See, none of us could do that. But Jesus was perfect. He was righteous. Hmm. It's in view. He laid his life down, and after three days of being buried, he rose in power, conquering death and sin and Satan and hell. This is good news for us, friends, because we couldn't do any of those things. We are lost and without hope left to ourselves. The chosen and precious cornerstone. Let me show you here on the screen what this looks like. And uh, I got a new laser that I'm pretty excited about. I heard some complaints that people couldn't see in my wimpy little laser. So I went out and I got me a laser. So prepare yourselves, all right? Tell me if you can see that. I blinded most of my family over Thanksgiving with this thing. But look here now at these stones. This is the southwest corner picture I got to take at the southwest corner of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Okay? This is the corner. Just to the top of this would be likely where Jesus was tested by Satan. Stood on the precipice, looking out over, right? And his response was, it is written. It is written. So here here is the corner. Actually, this is rubble thrown down in 70 AD, still along the wall here. Look at these massive stones that Herod put in place. These stones were here when Jesus was alive. Here is one stone. Track it along this corner. Look all the way down here and then all the way back. This is a massive, massive stone. And you you begin to feel how big these are when you're standing next to them. What is the most important stone that is set in any building? It is the cornerstone, the first stone. What has to be true about that stone? Well, it has to be exact and precise. It has to be plumb and square. It has to be perfect. Because the entire building is built off of the dimensions and the, and the cut of that stone. Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone because he is the only righteous one. He is the plumb line for all of humanity. His obedience in perfection lays the groundwork for our salvation. If the stone is off even the slightest down here, when you go up 100 feet, your building is massively crooked, right? So the cornerstone is key. And God the Father says, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, the righteous cornerstone. His name is Jesus. He's your only hope. Believe in him. Believe in him. This is a beautiful imagery that Peter is building out for us. The cornerstone is the foundation stone upon which everything must be built. 
Jesus himself said it this way when he stood and looked at Herod's temple with his own eyes, standing upon the top uh, of, of those stones I just showed you. He's saying, as he beholds this beautiful temple, he says, listen, something greater than the temple is here. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about himself. I'm the cornerstone. It's me. That temple exists to point to me. It was never an end in itself. It was always a pointer. The temple was a pointer to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him, Peter quotes from Isaiah, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You will never be disappointed. You will never be um, left out to dry. Your faith placed in Christ is a certain guaranteed confidence He is who he says he is. He will do exactly as he says. You will be saved. It's interesting. Believing. Believing. How many religions operate on everything other than that? Well, doing. Right? Religions exist around doing, performing, earning, appeasing. Not the Bible. What is true about Jesus Christ is He is everything. He did all the work. It is ours to simply say, great are you. You are my hope alone in this life and the next. You are righteous. I am not. You have made a way where I could never make a way. I throw myself completely upon your promise. I believe in you. Save me. Save me. I bring nothing to the table. You bring it all. Oh, friends, the difference between biblical Christianity and every world religion is night and day different. It's grace. It's mercy. It's kindness. It's free. He did the work. And he calls. Now, let me just illustrate this here. Whoever. Don't miss that. Whoever. Where are you going to go where that's not true? You get on a plane, you land in a country, you get off and you see someone. Guess what? Whoever. That's our message. Go to the ends of the earth, he says. Carry this good news. It's good news for all nations, all peoples. That's why we have missionaries working so hard, telling people in remote villages in Nepal, reaching to the, to the unreached places in Bangladesh. Guess what? We got good news. There is a stone who is righteous. He was laid in Zion. He is the hope of the nations. Whoever, that's wide open. And then look, believes. That's not wide open. Not everybody's good, right? It's not not just we're all good. No, you must believe in order to be saved. You must embrace this Jesus. Whoever believes, this is our message. Exclusive salvation, all other religions are misplaced hope and lead to the fires of hell. Let me say that again. Every other religion that chases after all these other false hopes, they are misplaced belief and they will lead you to the fires of hell. Only Jesus. It's only Jesus who is the cornerstone. Christ alone, cornerstone. Peter preached a sermon to the very people that murdered Jesus. 
In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are standing before the... I mean, the not literally, but they, they have blood on their hands. They have just killed Jesus. And days later, they have arrested Peter and John. And, and here's Peter, one of his early sermons that he's preaching. I love the fact that he's talking about the cornerstone back here too. So he wrote First Peter way, way after that. Many, many years later, he's still talking about the cornerstone. May that be true of us. 20, 30, 40, 50 years, guess what? Same message. Cornerstone. Listen to what he says. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's looking at these people, the religious leaders, the power brokers of the day, the Sanhedrin. He was rejected by you, the builders. Oh, by the way, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one else can save you. And he's preaching this good news to the murderers of Jesus. Do you think he's confident in this gospel? Do you think he understands the whoever? Whoever believes even if your hands are covered in the blood of the most innocent man ever, there's hope even there for you. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Maybe that day there were some who participated in the murder of Jesus who were actually saved by Peter's powerful sermon. They didn't know what to make of this guy. They're, they're looking at each other like, isn't this guy a fisherman from Galilee? What in the world? Look, look at the boldness of this man. And their only con conclusion was he had been with Jesus. He was a changed man. Not too many days earlier, he was denying Christ. There is salvation in no one else. Now, new New temple, new priesthood. I want to show you verse 5. The, the flow here is important, so we'll go back and put them together. But 4 and 6 kind of helped us get this cornerstone in view. So new temple, new priesthood. Look at how Peter brings us out in verse 5. I'll start with verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, as you come, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So, same language here, present, ongoing. As you come, as you continually come, you are being built, continually being built. So today, right now, in this place, we are being built. Built up as a spiritual house. This is the new temple. God's people. We no longer have to travel to Jerusalem. Now, trust me, it's fun. I can't wait to go back. But we don't have to go to a zip code to worship. We are the temple. God's people have become the temple of God. The dwelling place is now His people. The actual temple was always temporary. It was always a pointer to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go back to this stone picture here from the western, or the, well, it is the western wall if you carry up this way. I want you to note how these stones are placed and how they're fitted together. Look, pictured down here, the very bottom, the cornerstone, is where the life is emanating, right? There's life. He's a living stone, the cornerstone. And as we come to him, we are placed 
built together, joined, fastened, built up as a spiritual house. We then can be described as living stones as well. We are living stones. Guess what? We have life that death can't touch. We have life that comes only from the living stone, the cornerstone, Jesus, and that life will carry through all eternity. Not only that, but we share together in this. We're, we're built together. There's a unity. There's a oneness, a, 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 a like-mindedness that happens. Not just happened, but is happening as we come. The Word of God working in our minds, drawing us together, bringing us to unity, increasingly so and all the more so as the day draws near for the return of the cornerstone. Look at how Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you Christians are no longer strangers and aliens, once we were, but, but no longer, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, I love this. This is a verse that I point to often when people say, listen, aren't we looking for new revelation? What about this apostolic movement? And, you know, I need a word from the Lord. I need something else. I say, not according to the Bible. This word is sufficient. And if you want to hear from God, open your Bible. The foundation of the Christian life has been laid. It is complete. There's nothing more needing to be added. The foundation is what? As we look down, the apostles and the prophets. With what as the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. The gospel is the heartbeat of all of Scripture. Every Scripture points to Him in some way or another. And we have it in full, complete, sufficient, necessary, clear, authoritative, timeless, and beautiful. It's ours. Build your life there, Christian. Build on that foundation, and you will never be put to shame. He says we're joined together. In Christ, the, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's, we're, we're, we're a dwelling place. In Him, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. It is a beautiful thing to see God work, to knit our hearts together as one, to, to grow us in holiness and love such that our love becomes a witness to the world. What is going on with those people at Good Shepherd? They've tasted and they've seen. They know. They know Jesus. They've been with Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, he, he goes on and, and starts to mix metaphors here. I love this. Uh, like living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house. Now he says, to be a holy priesthood. And you're like, well, wait a second. Are we the house? Are we the priesthood? The answer is yes. Yes, you're both. You're, you're the house and you're the activity taking place in the spiritual house, the new temple. You, believer, are part of a holy priesthood that has been called by God to offer spiritual sacrifices made acceptable here through Jesus Christ. That's incredible. The priesthood of all believers. This is an anchor text for that. Every believer is a priest 
in Christ, we are a priesthood, a new and holy priesthood. And one of the things that I think we've got to feel is there are never in Scripture examples of self-appointed priests. Every single priest raised up was chosen by God. I think Peter's reminding us of where he started in this book. You're elect exiles. You're chosen by God. In fact, he's going to show us that in verse 9 next week. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You see the connection? This is the work of God. He chose you. He raised you up. He knit you together. And you have a purpose in this world. Twofold purpose in view, responsibilities of the priesthood. Number one, praise. We are to praise. That is, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When we gather, we sing. We sing His praise. He's worthy. Spiritual sacrifices. Lips that praise our God. The second thing is in verse 9. We're going to go there next week because it's so good. I had to carve it out for its own week. But I just got to point you forward because it connects here. Proclamation is the other part. So praise and proclamation. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We don't proclaim ourselves. We don't proclaim our righteousness. We, we proclaim Him, the glory of God, the, the, the splendor of the Father, the, the, the splendor of the Son, the splendor of the Spirit. We proclaim Him, the One who saved us. He chose us. He called us out of darkness, gave us life, set us on the rock of Christ. And now we, as faithful, chosen priests, offer daily sacrifices of praise to Him and proclaim to the ends of the earth. Now let's look at this, the rock of offense. Some people would like to eliminate the offense of the gospel. Not at this church. That's not, that's not what we do. The Bible doesn't do it, so we're going to stick with the Bible. right? The, the gospel is offensive. We live in a day that is, is, is wrapped up in the cult of tolerance, which is ironically intolerant of things that it deems unworthy. Most of the time, Christians and unbelieving uh, uh, you know, truth from the Scripture that, that, that is offensive. So let's consider these verses and, and put them to work. Peter says this, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, now he goes to Psalm 118 and quotes this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then it follows in, in that psalm, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes, right? So, but there's more. He's not just the cornerstone. He is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The imagery here is of one that this foundation stone laid can either be the foundation upon you, which you, you, you build everything. You see value and, and treasure. He's precious and chosen. And I cling to him with everything that I build my life upon him. Or your valuation can conclude another way. He's in the way. He's worthless. There's no value there. What kind of savior is a guy that got killed on a cross? That's, that's my savior? Like, am I, I'm going to look to that guy? No. So the stone 
that could be the foundation of your life, in this case, when you reject him, becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. This is warning language. This is, this is a kind of loving, kind warning. Everything's on the line here. The offense of the gospel. There are many churches today that would like to try to preach the gospel in a way that just really warms everyone's heart and just builds them up and makes them feel awesome. You know, they say things like, it's all about you. And it's a lie. It's, it's flattery, empty flattery to fill churches. The reality of the gospel is that God has chosen in His worth to make it all about Him to show love to people like us who don't deserve it. We are rebels, sinners, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, proud, boastful, disobedient to parents. The list goes on and on. Inventors of evil. We are the rebels who have chosen rebellion against God to suppress the truth that we know He exists and we say, we don't want you, and to choose the darkness and to choose a path that leads to the fires of hell, and that is exactly where we'll go apart from God's work. We will go there, and we will spend forever there in active, conscious torment under the righteous wrath of God in retribution for our sins, which, by the way, continue because we grind our teeth at Him throughout all eternity. That's hell. That's in the Bible. I remember sharing the gospel with a group of junior hires at a sports camp in California one time. And I got into that part of the good news of the gospel, which is, by the way, the bad news that, that is a part of the gospel as well. And when I mentioned hell, man, they stiffened up. Oh, the pastor just said hell. They thought I was cussing. They had not heard a pastor use that word. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a problem. Hell is a real place because God is a holy God and He sentences people to the fires of hell every day. Some have just gone there today in torment under God's wrath. The gospel is far better news than you ever dreamed because all of us deserve that. The fact that all of us are not there today is totally the grace of God. Absolutely the grace of God. No one deserves anything but this, and yet His worth is on display to say to people like us, I choose you. I save you. I make you righteous in my Son, Jesus Christ. I set your feet upon the rock of salvation. I keep you, and I give you inheritance with the saints in light not because of any ounce of righteousness in you, but because God says, this is who I am. You have been loved. That's what God does in the gospel. It's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Hmm. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, that is, who are rebelling against God, who are railing against Him, who are rejecting the stone. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's everything. It's the treasure found in the field where we go and sell everything we have to buy that treasure. There is nothing more important than Christ. 
Two kinds of people in this world. Those who are perishing in hard-hearted rejection against the Lord and those who are embracing Him and praising Him. Perishing or praising. Jesus Himself said this. Listen to this. Have you never read the Scriptures? He's addressing the Pharisees who are about to reject Him. Him. The stone. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, as he quotes from Psalm 118. It's, it's marvelous in our eyes. And then he adds some commentary. Catch this commentary. Jesus himself adds, Everyone who falls or stumbles on that stone will be shattered or broken to pieces. That is eternal damnation. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the imagery here is they stumble on, on the, the gospel, they reject him, they, they, they rail against Jesus, they stumble on him, and then he tips over and squashes them under his wrath. Do you know who dispenses wrath in the lake of fire to come? It is the Lamb. The Lamb stands on the shores of the lake of fire and dispenses wrath. It will crush you. If you reject him, this is a loving warning. He says this to people whose eyes are on. He's just looking right to the depths of their soul with this warning. And then Peter says this, and we thought we were in the deep end. Whew, it gets deeper. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Whoa. Wow. There's a lot in there. They stumble. Who, who's they? Those who reject the stone, who harden their hearts, who, who say there's nothing here. That it's, it's worthless. Get rid of him. They stumble because they disobey the word. What is that? Well, that's the gospel. They don't embrace it. They don't believe it. They, they, they continue in unbelief. And then it adds, as they were destined to do. Christian, your Bible teaches both of these realities in blaring and clear ways all over the place. These are both true realities functioning in our world, and they are true. God is absolutely sovereign. It is on the, nearly every page of your Bible, set in clear display, and at the very same time, rebellious Human sinners are responsible for our decisions, for our rebellion, for our sins. No one in the fires of hell can say, hey, wait a second, I don't deserve to be here. It is, it is a fitting retrib retributive response of a righteous and holy God to punish sinners for their choices, their willful, sinful rebellion, human responsibility. And yet in heaven... Not a one person can say, I deserve to be here. Divine sovereignty. He's sovereign to save. He's sovereign in all things. Let's see if we can spot it. They stumble because they disobey the word. What's that? Human responsibility. It's there. First half is human responsibility. They, they're reaping what they sow. Like, they, you're going to sow sin, you're going to reap hell. 
That's exactly what happens. Responsibility. The second half is divine sovereignty, as they were destined to. See, the the Bible doesn't seek to reconcile the mystery here, but it does teach both realities. Charles Spurgeon said, I never try to reconcile friends. These are both true, and they're both taught in the Bible. So we, if we want to be faithful, biblical Christians, we embrace them both. The question I have, though, is why does Peter say this here? This is why it's so important to see context. Why would he say this? What's, what, what's he wanting to do in saying this to the people he's writing this letter to? I think it's this. It goes back to the theme of the entire letter. How to triumph in troubled times. These words prepare for persecution. They prepare these believers to be attacked and persecuted. This is how Wayne Grudem says it. I, I think he's right on. Hostile unbelief should not terrify Christians against whom it is directed. For God their Father holds it all under His control and will bring it to an end when He deems it best. Amazing as it may seem, even the stumbling and disobedience of unbelievers have been destined by God. Wow. Ephesians 1, verse 11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Not most things. All things. That includes unbelief. That includes persecution. That includes rampant, like Neronian persecution that's about to break out under Nero. He is, he is going to unleash all hell on Christians, burning them alive, feeding them to lions, it would be so easy to say, oh Lord, you've lost control. Clearly, this is completely out of your power to stop because if you, if you could, you would, right? So Peter is establishing for them the very foundation upon which they stand when they stare at lions. God is sovereign. He is at work. Nothing will meet you that has not passed through his all-wise and sovereign grid. Nothing comes to pass apart from God's sovereign plan. Not a single thing. Joseph said this in Genesis 45 and also in chapter 50. He said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you, as he speaks to his brothers, whom you sold into Egypt. He doesn't, he doesn't pull back on the offense of their sin. You sold me. I'm your brother. The guy that you pretended was dead, remember you sold me? Basically, you had a death wish for me. You profited off of my life and pocketed the money. Now he says this. How does he say this? Where, what's the foundation on he's, that he's standing on? Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me. Not God watched and then responded no god did it god sent me here before you to preserve my life he goes on in chapter 50 as for you you meant it for evil what is it the sin the horrific sin and betrayal of selling your brother into slavery and profiting from his life you meant it for evil so you did it you're responsible human responsibility but god meant it not just used it he purposed it. He destined it 
for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This can be an incredible source of strength for the Christian. When you realize that the the foundation you stand on is the cornerstone of a God who is sovereign over every single event in history, everything that will meet your life. He is sovereign over. So many verses that point us. Romans 8.28, he works all things, right? Comes back again and again. Maybe the most amazing display of the fact that God is sovereign even over sin and sinners and unbelief and rejection is the rejection of the cornerstone. Listen to Acts chapter 4. As Peter and John and the church are gathered to pray, they start their prayer by saying, Sovereign Lord. And they go on and here's, we'll pick it up right here. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were gathered together. Now, willfully, absolutely, choosing to do what they wanted to do and responsible for it, right? None of that's pulled away. And at the very same time, look at their prayer. They were gathered together, by the way, to murder Jesus. And he says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They appeal to his sovereignty over the very people that threaten their lives who murdered Jesus. And it's a source of strength. They draw on the sovereign Comfort that he is over all things. And it gives them boldness to keep on preaching, even if they meet with death. So, number one, God is sovereign over sin, unbelief, and persecution. God is sovereign over it. He reigns and rules over it. He is sovereign And number two, no persecutor and no amount of persecution can ever thwart God's wise and sovereign plan. Now, that's not just helpful for them, is it? We need that today. Because this country is getting darker and darker by the day. And things aren't looking so great. And increasingly, we are anticipating more pressure, more persecution. So, friends... We need this confidence as well. He's sovereign. He's at work. He is good and he is purposed, even in persecution, to bring about what is best. God can plan to do things that he hates to accomplish things that he loves. The cross of Christ is the greatest display of that. So our response this morning, man, a lot to process here. Let's go back to the heartbeat of this passage and just ask the question, who is Jesus to you today? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a cornerstone? Is he the foundation stone upon which your entire life stands? You wake up in the morning and you say, my feet are planted on the rock. I fear no evil. I don't fear sin or death or Satan or hell. He is everything to me. I am his I am secure.
Or is your valuation different? Have you been living your life basically saying, I don't really care about him. I got stuff going. Like I, I'm going through life. I'm, I've got things to do. I got fun to have. I don't need Jesus dragging me along. Hear me loud and clear today. You will trip over this Jesus and he will crush you. Don't play games. Hear him loud and clear. Know him today as your Savior and Lord, or he will become your worst enemy. He's not messing around. If God is stirring in your heart, there's hope today. There's hope today. Embrace him. Turn from your sin. Stop running away from him and start treasuring him. Embrace him. Lord Jesus, be my Savior. Be my foundation. Be everything to me. Be my Lord. Lead on. I trust you. I believe in you. And I claim this promise that everyone who trusts in you, whoever believes in him, will not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. Christians today, those who have already done this, treasure him all the more. Build your life upon him and him alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this precious chosen cornerstone. We thank you for this church that has its roots planted so deep into the bedrock of this cornerstone. Oh, what a joy it is to gather here with your people and stand on this firm foundation and build our lives as you build us day by day as we gather. You build us up and to be the people that you have called us to be, the new temple. A priesthood holy, offering sacrifices acceptable in Jesus Christ of praise and proclamation. Lord, thank you for what you've done, and we pray that you would use us to point others to this incredible treasure. May there be no one here who leaves today without embracing you, I pray, O oh God. Stir in their hearts. Open their eyes to the glory of Christ and save to the utmost, we pray. In the name of the cornerstone, chosen and precious, in the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen.